Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to the Korean War episode. 14. Last time we looked at the incredible revelations in American motives and planning for the war in Korea. 
and we noted that while these revelations may shock you, they certainly gel with what the United States was developing at the time. In other words, its direct response to the apparently unassailable Soviet position in NSC 68. In that imaginatively named report, the Truman administration, in top-secret fashion, outlined its policy aims and the pressing threats to the American position in the world. The solution, it was declared, was a massive increase in military spending to meet the new threat posed by the Sino-Soviet bloc, and a huge increase in the reach and influence of the American financial and intelligence systems in the meantime. Through these methods, Washington hoped to nip the Soviet threat in the bud, and the Korean Peninsula, as we saw, provided the perfect key to unlock this problem. Korea was the ideal bait because it would draw in the Soviet Union, invested in the North Korean government, and the People's Republic of China, which bordered the Korean Peninsula along Manchuria's Yellow River, which to this day represents the official border between the DPRK and the PRC. In this episode, then, we make the picture a little bit more complete and explain the extent to which the Soviets and Kim Il-sung were indeed interested in the Korean Peninsula. Yet, for Joseph Stalin, the issue wasn't so simple as wanting a war which would explode and then get rapidly out of control. He not only needed to draw the People's Republic of China in, he also needed to manipulate the war in Korea into being before Mao Zedong launched a successful invasion of Taiwan. This background narrative thus runs concurrently to our major story, but as usual, we'll do our utmost to keep track of all these events. I will now take you to the Democratic People's Republic of Korea in late January 1950. The song of the week this week is brought to you by 1956 The Eventful Year. 1956 The Eventful Year is the latest series from the Annals of When Diplomacy Fails. It is a pretty darn exciting series, and I think you guys would really enjoy it if you enjoy anything to do with the Korean War or the Cold War, which of course you must do, otherwise why would you be listening? 1956 is going to be split up into two parts. The first part will look at life after Stalin and how the de-Stalinization efforts in the Soviet Union led to some very intense, bitter, bloody, tragic revolts in both Hungary and Poland. The second part will examine the build-up to and the outbreak of the Suez Crisis, which most of you have probably heard of, but I can assure you there's a whole lot more to the story, to both of these stories in both of these parts, than you may be aware of. Anyway, the first four episodes of 1956 can be freely accessed by simply clicking on the RSS feed in the link below, and you can listen to them to your heart's content. However, if you would like to access all 35 episodes that are to come over the next year, then make sure to visit our Patreon page, because 1956 is a Patreon exclusive in its full form. I've got some great feedback already from you guys listening to 1956, and I've seen several patrons sign up and become diplomats, or even higher levels of support, which of course is all really, really appreciated. If you guys would like to sample this series before you take the Patreon plunge, so to speak, do make sure to listen to those episodes that are already out there. And if you're really not sure about what 1956 is all about, or you're not really sure if you even want to bother clicking on those links, that's fine too. I'm trying to expand When Diplomacy Fails in as many ways as I possibly can, and by releasing a new series like 1956, I think I'll finally be able to break through the so-called glass ceiling. Anyway, enough of all that stuff. Let's go back to the episode. The song of the week this week is Swing Low, Sweet Chariot by the Southern Four, recorded 
1924. Enjoy, guys. We'll be back with episode 14 of The Korean War. It was the message Kim Il-sung had been waiting for. At last, Stalin declared that he was ready to grant approval for a war in Korea, although adding that an operation on such a large scale demands preparation. It is necessary to organize the operation in such a way to minimize risk. The Soviet ambassador to Pyongyang communicated this message on the 31st of January, 1950. Ambassador Shtikov reported to Stalin that day that Kim Il-sung received my report with great satisfaction. Your agreement to receive him and your readiness to assist him in this matter made an especially strong impression. He asked me if this means that it is possible to meet with Comrade Stalin on this question. I answered that, from this communication, it follows that Comrade Stalin is ready to receive you. Kim Il-sung was elated, and he set to work planning both the steps leading to the war and for his meeting to come with Stalin, which was expected to take place in Moscow at some time in the spring. Between the 30th of March and the 24th of April 1950, Kim Il-sung would be wined and dined in Moscow, as the critical aspects of the Korean War would be planned and discussed. Interestingly, Stalin's new Chinese ally was not to be told of this meeting. In fact, it was to be kept a complete secret from Mao Zedong for as long as possible. Kim wanted to keep the arrangement secret as well, but not from Mao. Believing that the Chinese comrade had already been informed of the meeting, what he really wanted was to keep the matter secret from the rest of the world, or in geographic terms, from the South Korean government. Kim was at this point beginning to harbour doubts about the whole scheme in spite of his initial enthusiasm. 
For all his posturing and apparent confidence in the success of the invasion, Kim was wary of the possibility that the South Koreans might not support him. Why would this matter, you might be wondering? Why would it matter if the South Koreans didn't support Kim Il-sung when he invaded? Well, part, a big part, in fact, of Kim Il-sung's plan for invasion wasn't so much to conquer South Korea as to invade and wait for South Korea to rise up in revolt against the South Korean government and then join him in a big, unified, democratic People's Republic of Korea. Stalin managed to persuade him, noting that the Korean people would follow a strong leader like Sheep. I don't really know how well or bad Kim Il-sung would have taken that since he was Korean as well. But giving one of his many prophetic, revealing warnings about the conflict to come and signaling hopes for what the Korean War would become, Stalin said to Kim Il-sung that The Korean friends should not expect great assistance and support from the Soviet Union because it had more important challenges to meet than the Korean problem. The situation in the West is very difficult and was occupying much of its time. If the United States participated in the war, the Soviet Union had no intention of fighting the United States. The Korean friends should consult more with Mao Zedong because he had a good understanding of Oriental matters. With this cable... Kim could be forgiven for thinking that Stalin's policy towards him had changed. Where he had once given every indication that he intended to support North Korea in whatever means proved necessary, now he seemed to be cautioning his own non-interference. Supplying arms and materials was one thing, but Stalin was evidently wary of becoming actively involved in the war to come. This, of course, was Stalin's plan all along to create the Korean War, but to avoid actually involving the Soviet Union properly in the conflict, as a combatant. The Chinese would instead be on the receiving end of such damage that one would receive in a large-scale war, hence Stalin's strategic nudging of Kim towards Mao Zedong. Stalin knew that Kim was wary of putting too much trust or reliance on Mao, as the North Korean leader feared, ironically enough, that Mao would attempt to take control of the war in Korea if he was allowed, owing to the geographic proximity of the conflict to Manchuria. Of course, this geographic proximity was what Stalin was relying on, but Kim was also reasonably sure at the same time that even if Stalin said he would not intervene, he also could not allow North Korea to fall to the West should the worst outcome occur. After all, did the Soviet Union not have the atomic bomb, and was Moscow not sworn to protect its allies with it? In the event, Kim was partially correct. Stalin would authorise limited Soviet involvement in the war, most infamously through the use of Soviet jet fighters and the secret provision of Soviet pilots to fly the trademark MiG planes which would come up against their American counterparts in the northwest corner of the peninsula at a theatre deemed MiG Alley. All of this was to come, of course, but Stalin was confident in his own right that as much as he may plan for his own venture, Mao would be unable to ignore the danger to his own regime if North Korea teetered on the edge of collapse. In fact, Stalin was counting on this assumption and had based his entire North Korean policy around it. In late February, a group of military advisors travelled from the Soviet Union to Pyongyang and began to help their North Korean allies oversee war preparations. At the same time, the shipments of war material to Kim's regime massively increased. All the things a budding administration on the warpath needs to sustain itself, planes, small arms, huge stocks of ammunition, medical supplies and barrels of oil, all began to pour into North Korea over the Manchurian Railway. So, if they were coming over the Manchurian Railway, Mao can't have been ignorant of what was going on here. 
We saw last time that Washington was becoming aware of this buildup of soldiers and materials, and anticipated that a war on the Korean Peninsula would be on the cards soon, so Mao can't have been ignorant of such developments taking place in his own backyard. He wasn't ignorant of it, and in fact he was rather perturbed by it, because Mao was noticing at the same time that the promised Soviet shipments to China for the purpose of the invasion of Taiwan had significantly slowed to a trickle. So the Koreans were getting all the war materials and the Chinese were not really getting anything. This, Mao rightly perceived, was Stalin's way of attempting to launch the Korean War before Mao would be in a position to launch his invasion of Taiwan. In the midst of such aggravating developments, Mao was approached by the North Korean ambassador. Mao was intensely suspicious of what Kim was up to, all the more so because the ambassador insisted that Kim Il-sung was undergoing medical treatment throughout April and thus couldn't be reached. The real reason he couldn't be reached, of course, was because he was secretly meeting with Stalin in Moscow. In an attempt to pry some useful information out of Ambassador Yi from North Korea, Mao tried to test the waters and see if any North Korean plans were yet in place for an invasion of the South. In line with this aim, Mao said to the North Korean ambassador that If a third world war begins, Korea will not escape participation in it. Therefore, the Korean Democratic People's Republic should prepare its armed forces. Ambassador Yi's vague response only heightened Mao's suspicions. What is interesting about this exchange, guys, is that Yi didn't actually get a chance to tell Kim Il-sung about it, since by that point Kim was still in Moscow. One person who did find out by hook or by crook was Stalin, and he must have been greatly amused by what happened next. Unaware that Stalin knew what his ambassador had said, and having not read his ambassador's report himself, Kim Il-sung tried to misrepresent the exchange between his ambassador and Mao in a bid to build the picture that he wanted to build, and to persuade Stalin further of his own view of the coming conflict. What did this look like on paper? Well, where Yi had been told by Mao in Beijing that if a third world war begins, Korea will not escape participation in it, therefore the Korean People's Democratic Republic should prepare its armed forces. Kim told Stalin that Mao actually said that peaceful unification was impossible, and put further words in the Chinese leader's mouth when he claimed that Mao said, Solely military means are required to unify Korea. As regards the Americans, there is no need to be afraid of them. The Americans will not enter a world war for such a small territory. Kim's behaviour here places him further still in the duped camp during the build-up to the Korean War. Kim Il-sung had lied to Stalin and presented Mao as all for the war, out of the belief that if Mao was unsupportive, Stalin would delay his plans for the conflict. Kim Il-sung wanted the war to begin as soon as possible, but in actual fact, all of this ineffectual trickery on Kim Il-sung's part was mostly pointless, because Stalin was determined to go ahead with the Korean War, regardless of what Mao Zedong thought. On the 13th of May 1950, Kim and some allies travelled by plane to Beijing with the aim of informing Mao of the plans for a war in Korea, which, don't forget, they thought Mao Zedong had been mostly appraised of by Stalin already, and with the additional aim of fostering closer cooperation between such strategically linked neighbours on the eve of the Korean War. This was the end result of the talks between Kim's ambassador Yi in Beijing, with Mao and Zhou Enlai, and while Mao certainly had his suspicions that the North Koreans were planning something, 
he had been unable to wrest a solid answer from the North Korean ambassador while Kim had been in Moscow. It was only when the North Korean and Chinese communist leaders met face to face that Mao would have to hide his outrage at the fact that all this planning had been going on behind his back, and that Stalin had determined to go with the Korean theatre before helping Mao finish off his Taiwan problem. Thankfully for Mao, he was at least a good actor, and Kim Il-sung was none the wiser that Mao and Stalin were far from seeing eye to eye on the matter. What is really interesting though guys, considering what we learned in the last episode on the developments in American foreign policy during this period, was the explanation that Stalin gave to Mao after Mao sent him a terse cable on the evening of the 14th of May, after having just waved Kim Il-sung goodbye for the night. Mao wanted to know exactly how long this charade had been going on for, and he asked Stalin for the personal clarifications that the Soviet Union was effectively abandoning Mao's plan to invade Taiwan, that is, in favour of this Korean one. Mao basically wanted answers. Stalin cabled back only a few hours later, early in the morning though, noting that, In light of the changed international situation, we agree with the proposal of the Koreans to move forward unification. What changed international situation could Stalin be referring to here? Could it be the latest report by the National Security Council? published on a top-secret basis in the previous month? Was Stalin aware enough of NSC 68, that groundbreaking US foreign policy change, that he was now using it to justify the Korean War to Mao Zedong? Either way, to Mao Zedong, this whole thing stank. It is not clear if Mao was informed of NSC 68, or if Stalin was referring to something else, or making the whole thing up when he talked of the changed international situation. Maybe he was talking to the Soviet acquisition of the atomic bomb, for example. On the other hand, it was entirely possible that Stalin was just using that excuse as a smokescreen to make Mao overthink things and to overlook the Korean elephant in the room. It is also worth noting that Stalin may have wanted to see Mao panic and to rush into the invasion of Taiwan now before the Korean adventure could take place. This rushing would either result in failure, further weakening Mao's position, or it would be successful, and the West would be of the impression that these apparently coordinated attacks signalled a communist campaign against its position. If Washington adopted this siege mentality and blamed the Chinese for the sense of threat in both Taiwan and Korea, then there would be no question of a Sino-American reproach on. So in other words, either way, Stalin would win. Mao, however, would not stand for this. And since Kim was in his house, after all, he could now try to persuade the North Korean leader against the invasion, thus outmaneuvering Stalin in the process. Try as he might, though, Mao could not persuade Kim Il-sung to stand down. Kim was convinced that the coming war would be a success, and he was also confident that the Soviet supplies would be enough to furnish Pyongyang with a glorious victory. Kim had evidently become intoxicated by the prospects of success, And Stalin knew this, and he had likely aimed to achieve this intoxication by the time he waved him off and said goodbye at the end of their month-long meeting the previous month in April. Thus, Kim may have believed he was travelling to Beijing to let Mao Zedong know of the war, but in reality he was going as an agent of Stalin to rub the war in Mao's face and to present the conflict as a fait accompli to the Chinese leader, which Mao was plainly powerless to hold. If Sino-Korean tensions escalated on the eve of war, then so did Soviet-Korean cooperation, as the war supplies to North Korea only increased to new heights. 
Interestingly, almost as a further snub to Mao, these increased supplies in the last month of peace were delivered by sea rather than by land. Such an act, in the words of North Korea's head of logistics, was done for the specific purpose of denying the Chinese any hard intelligence of about the North's preparations. And this North Korean official noted further that even before Mao gave his approval of Kim's intentions, the Soviet leader began to act. After Kim's meeting with Stalin, Moscow began to send additional weapons. As soon as Kim Il-sung returned home, the weapons began to arrive in huge numbers at the port of Changjin. The quantities were obviously bigger than before. This was a final stage in the preparations for war. On arrival, the weapons were immediately distributed among the troops deployed along the 38th parallel. By the time North Korea began the war on the 26th of June 1950, it had 10 infantry divisions, 258 tanks, 1600 artillery pieces, and 178 planes. More interesting than the end result, though, was the fact that the North Korean army went from roughly on par quantitatively with the South at the end of May to being capable of overwhelming it by the end of June and on the eve of war. The Soviet Union had evidently stepped up its supply of arms and materials to North Korea in the final month of peace, likely because Stalin was rushing by that point to place as much strength at Kim's disposal in a bid to make him strike before the Chinese leader had the chance. Furthermore, as if to further prove that theory that Stalin was in a hurry, Soviet military advisors drew up war plans for the North Koreans to use as soon as Kim Il-sung returned from Moscow in late April. In the space of a few days, they completely revitalized the strategic value of Kim's invasion plan, in place of the old North Korean invasion plan, which was limited by its defensive nature, and all the while such a plan was kept deliberately secret from Mao Zedong, who was plainly being kept in the dark about North Korean military capabilities and of the likelihood for success. Stalin couldn't afford to let Mao intervene and argue the point about war strategy in this 11th hour. Kim must be persuaded through this shiny new war plan and his sudden abundance of military force that there was no time like the present and that he had to push forward as soon as was possible. The reason for Stalin's haste was that he was racing against the similar plans of Mao Zedong, who had been massing a huge army on the Chinese coast and who planned to assault Taiwan with or without Soviet help. Yet Stalin's very haste may well have damaged the Korean plan, since, as according to North Korea's Chief of Operations Bureau, they, the Soviets, did not consult with anybody. They did everything themselves, they did not study the terrain, and they did not know it. Because of that, they made a lot of mistakes. Mistakes were a natural part of warfare and could only be plugged up as best as one could manage, but opposition to such plans was another issue entirely. One of the most outspoken voices against Kim Il-sung's new war plan to invade the South was none other than North Korea's Secretary of Defense, Cho Yong-gon. Even though Cho was a senior communist government member and a supporter of the pro-Soviet faction in Kim Il-sung's court, he was convinced that the Soviet war plan was destined to fail, and he was also concerned at what the Americans would do. He correctly anticipated that after the fall of China to communism, Washington couldn't permit South Korea to also fall into communist hands. Considering the mood of the time, Cho was lucky not to be purged, and his veteran status singled him out as an invaluable figure, particularly when the war predictably did turn against Kim. When Cho returned to work in August, after having resigned in May in protest, he likely had a smug sort of smile on his face, but he of course knew better than to say I told you so. 
Cho, like so many other native Koreans, would be swept up into the whirlwind that the conflict created, having had no say over its course or direction. What is perhaps most interesting about the Cho episode was Stalin's interjection on Cho's behalf. Understanding the perilous status of Kim's regime when the Allied counterattack began in August, Stalin advised Kim to let bygones be bygones and not to look such an experienced official in the mouth. Kim did as he was told, as again did so many native Koreans in the build-up to the war. But we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves here. By the last week of June, Kim was armed with a vague understanding with Mao Zedong and a clear message from Stalin, which said that the Soviet Union would not directly intervene on its side. What Kim Il-sung thus had to rely on was the use of force, and this force had been an asset of Stalin's making in the last few weeks leading up to the war, particularly in the realm of tanks, as nearly 150 T-34 tanks were supplied from mid-May, providing Kim with a terrifying capacity to thrust forward in a lightning strike and push the Allies into the sea before any form of Allied counterattack could be envisioned. There is a danger of getting too far ahead in the narrative and going down a few rabbit holes here, but we will see in the next few episodes how Washington was forced, almost in spite of itself, to provide an emergency response task force that was well-versed in amphibious landings. The challenge was providing enough force to hold North Korean forces back, but not so much that a great struggle was prevented. This great struggle, as Dean Acheson would audaciously demonstrate through his lax approach to South Korea in the final weeks of peace, was the essential key to unlocking the American potential, and at its core was the Chinese intervention. Whether Mao Zedong ever realised the extent to which his nominal ally and his nominal rival depended upon his position for the sake of their ends, or not, is worth considering, just as it is surely worth considering whether the Soviet Union and the United States ever realised that both of their plans had, at their core, the same outcome in mind. Both Washington and Moscow wanted the war to escalate and pull the Chinese in, because only through such intervention could Washington get its budget increases and Moscow get its Chinese alienation. Stalin was at least better connected to the Chinese leader than the Truman administration, and he was able to rely on the fact that without his aid, Mao wouldn't be able to launch an invasion of Taiwan, or would he be able to? Perhaps out of a sense of seething anger more than anything else, once Mao discovered through Kim Il-sung, rather than his actual ally in Stalin, that Stalin had chosen Korea over Taiwan, the Chinese leader swung from patience to defiance. Mao was evidently sick of Stalin's manipulation, and he couldn't allow Stalin to control the initiative any longer, so he determined to attack Taiwan with what he had on hand, safe in the knowledge that the American policy towards Taiwan, as laid down in NSC 48, would mean American non-intervention. From this, we can deduce, as did Stalin, that Mao didn't know about NSC 68 by this point, or of the rapid shift in American foreign policy, which was to declare Taiwan as a place of national importance for holding the line against communism. The importance of being up to date with your rival's latest foreign policy papers had never been so stark, because it seems as though Stalin knew about NSC 68, either through his agent network in the United States or leaks elsewhere, 
he knew that the Americans would look unfavorably upon any infringement of non-communist states such as Taiwan. Yet, as informed as Stalin was, he didn't seem to possess the full picture, and this is where things can get a bit complicated, and why there are some doubts over whether Stalin actually knew about NSC 68 after all. For one, it's worth remembering the goal of NSC 68. It intended to launch the United States and its allies into a major war of attrition so that massive budget increases would be justified. Thus, Korea was the perfect fit. It was far away enough, but also important enough, to tick the necessary boxes. If Stalin knew all aspects of NSC 68, then it stands to reason that he would also have understood the value that Korea now held for these new American interests, and the extent to which Washington now relied upon the North Koreans to violate the sovereignty of the South, with Soviet prodding, of course. Had Stalin known that he was playing into American hands by giving them the war that they badly wanted, Stalin may well still have pushed for it, since in this case he could get more out of the war than of peace. In peacetime he would be forced to support Mao's invasion of Taiwan, which would open up a whole range of problems to the Soviet position. Even if Washington expected the Korean attack though, this didn't change the fact that the conflict was guaranteed to hold China to ransom either way. In my view though, I think what probably happened was that Stalin got some pieces of information from NSC 68 and enough to know that American foreign policy was undergoing a shift, but not so much that he understood every aspect of it. We must bear in mind that only two months existed in the time between when Truman received NSC 68 on his desk on the 11th of April and when the Korean War broke out on the 25th of June. Had Stalin had longer, he may have found out more about what the Americans wanted, and he may well have decided in the end that playing into Washington's hands was not worth it, but this is unlikely. The very reason why Stalin only had two months, don't forget, was because of his own self-imposed timetable. He needed the Korean War to come before Mao's Taiwanese venture erupted, which seemed, by the way, tantalizingly close to erupting. Mao Zedong knew that he possessed an abundance of men, money and materials in comparison to Chiang Kai-shek, but such plenty wasn't going to be enough unless his men suddenly grew gills. Mao was suffering from an acute shortage of amphibious craft, and of any kind of aircraft. So low was Mao on aircraft that Chiang had been able to ship his men around unfettered as they occupied key island bastions throughout the spring of 1950. These forward bases would provide the Chinese Republicans with a first line of defence against any communist invasion of Taiwan, and it seemed perfectly impossible for Mao to crack these nuts while he lacked the vital sea and air equipment. This, of course, was why Mao had been forced against his better judgement to depend on the Soviets, who had, as we saw, drip-fed him and then kept him on the long finger long enough to delay his action altogether. The monsoon seasons in July would seriously hamper any effort to reach Taiwan or any other islands, and so Mao felt he would have to make some kind of show of force, at least a show of force, if not an invasion of Taiwan, before that point, to keep the pressure piled on the Chinese Republicans. Incredibly, Mao proved so vulnerable, and his mainland cities such as Shanghai received such a beating from Chiang Kai-shek's air assaults, that Stalin gingerly sent some MiG fighters to defend his Chinese ally. Making their appearance in the Asian theatre in April 1950, several hundred Soviet pilots flew sorties against the Republican Chinese, only to then withdraw their support at the moment when it seemed as though they might stay behind. 
This act had plainly been designed to send a message to the Chinese leader, and to further distract him from his goal over the spring, and Mao's rage only bubbled higher as the weeks progressed. In line with Mao's determination to defy Moscow, he ordered an invasion of Hainan Island, one of Chang's outlying strongholds, guarding the route to Taiwan, and eventually he captured it. Yet capturing this tiny island cost Mao Zedong 10,000 casualties, and the Republican army, well supplied and well supported from the air, withdrew with most of their numbers intact to Taiwan to fight another day. It had been a symbolic Republican stand and a strategic withdrawal, but hardly the rapturous communist triumph that Mao had desired. We should also bear in mind that Mao demobilized 1.4 million men from the previously gargantuan 5.4 million Chinese serving in the People's Liberation Army, since such an act would hopefully provide funds with which the new equipment, like landing craft, could be quickly paid for, if the Soviet Union were to send it hastily. Mao thought that if he promised instant payment to Stalin, then Stalin would have no choice but to oblige and sell him the necessary equipment. Yet it was clear from May 1950 that the conflict in Korea would now be used as an excuse. Any arms or equipment which Stalin had originally intended to send to the Chinese, whenever that time was due to come, had been diverted to the more pressing action in Korea. Chiang Kai-shek, under the impression that the United States would not save Taiwan after all, following a blip of optimism after the Sino-Soviet Pact, withdrew all of his forces from the outlying islands and concentrated everything in Taiwan. One could ask, of course, why Chiang Kai-shek didn't know that the United States was going to support him, and why he hadn't been informed of NSC-68 in the process. In fact, Dean Acheson would reiterate the old policy, NSC-48, to the Republican Chinese, rather than inform them of the new one, NSC-68. By keeping Chiang Kai-shek in the dark, it would be easier to keep all the relevant secrets of NSC-68 close to American chests, and this meant that no secrets could get out and that the North Koreans wouldn't be spooked into cancelling their plans. In fact, with the Republican withdrawal from the outlying islands around Taiwan, prospects for Chiang Kai-shek's regime appeared dreadfully gloomy. The American charge d'affaires on the island was predicting that the fall of the Republican regime within the month at the earliest, or three months at most. Americans were advised not to travel to Taiwan in the midst of a massive Chinese buildup of forces along the coast opposite the island, and the heavy rhetoric directed at Chiang, which declared him a warmonger, and insisted he should do the humane thing and make an organised peace with the People's Republic of China. If one could have watched the scene taking place in Asia over May and June 1950, it would have been apparent that in both North Korea and in the land immediately opposite Taiwan, something serious was going down. As if sensing that war in Korea was imminent, Mao felt a sense of urgency like never before, and he told his commanders to think of the process by which Taiwan could be seized. Right as this was happening, North Korean soldiers were crossing the border and testing the defences of the utterly beleaguered South Korean army. After having concentrated with all the force at his fingertips for the last few weeks, by the second half of June 1950, Kim Il-sung was waiting on the final pieces to come together, before he could launch his invasion. Mao Zedong, a few hundred miles away, was himself plotting the invasion of Taiwan, due by the end of July if the monsoon weather permitted. Had Mao launched his invasion of Taiwan, it is far from certain how the conflict in Korea or in Taiwan itself would have progressed. Short of American aid, Taiwan could not hold out forever. 
Yet its forces were enjoying a spike in morale, thanks, perhaps, to a strange sense that you just couldn't put your finger on that the attentions of the People's Liberation Army were about to be turned elsewhere fairly soon. As the Americans looked on, knowing that they would have to commit forces either way, Joseph Stalin's ambitions, Kim Il-sung's dreams, and the final details of NSC-68 all were about to be fulfilled. In the next episode, we're going to take our coverage back a little bit though, and examine the situation in South Korea on the eve of the war. It is in that episode that we'll see for ourselves just how cynically single-minded the Truman administration had become in its quest to fulfil the terms of NSC-68. South Korea, although a troubled Syngman Rhee could never have imagined such a nightmare, had been chosen as the pawn in a wider game, and America was soon to launch its checkmate. First though, we'll have to see exactly how Washington managed to pretend as though all was well in South Korea for nearly half a year, when the consistent messages from Seoul spoke of nothing less than certain doom. That's all to come, history friends, but until then, my name is Zach and you've been listening to episode 14 of the Korean War. Thanks for listening, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.